well. Let's kick off. The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thee thanks for the season of Lent and for the focus that we are able to bring to your holy word and your holy scripture. And now focus our minds this morning on the message of the epistle to the Romans and inspire us to live that message in our daily lives. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, um, here we are in the third of the four sections of Paul's epistle to the Romans. We are in chapter 11 of the epistle to the Romans. The first two sections wound up with chapter 8, which was the wrath of God and the grace of God, which together make up our very detailed understanding of Paul's theology about the relationship between grace and the law. And this third section is about the plan of God and specifically his plan to redeem all of humanity through, through Christ to him. For the, first, for the last couple of chapters, as we've read, Paul is grappling with the implications of Israel not having accepted the Messiah. And for the past two weeks, Steve has been reading us through these passages where Paul continues to go back to the Old Testament and remind his readers of the prophets and the things that were written about Israel being a, a, a stubborn and a headstrong people. And he ends chapter 10 with this rather downbeat observation, quoting again from the Old Testament, verse 21 of chapter 10, but of Israel he says, he meaning God, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the message of chapters 9 and 10 is that the Gentiles, while not striving for righteousness, had managed to find it. And the Jews had been striving for righteousness, had missed it because they were striving in the wrong direction through the law rather than through grace. So is that the end of the story? Well, it's not the end of the story. Now we're in chapter 11. If somebody would read chapter 11 verses 1 through 10, and we'll see how Paul explains through chapter 11 how this is not the end of the story. Volunteer? Copy? It's short. Do it. Okay. 1 through 10, chapter 11. Go. I ask them, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they may not see and bend their backs forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul cites his own pedigree to begin his argument that God has not abandoned his people. And in citing his own pedigree, we don't understand Paul to be boastful, but he's making the point that he sees himself as a part of the nation of Israel, even as the, um, the apostle to the Gentiles. He is a, mem- a member of what was uh, in, the, in the prophets, the 7,000 who were the uh, faithful remnant. We'll get back to that in a moment. Notice that he writes in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's that word again. Remember it at the end of chapter 8. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be called to him and um, to conform to him through Christ. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he glorified. And those he glorified, he justified. That's key in chapter 8. Foreknew. There was the line from uh, the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's the essence of foreknowledge and it boils down to God's sovereign plan. He foreknew the nation of Israel, meaning that he called them as part of his plan. So there is no way that God is going to reject the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is part of his plan. He quotes the prophet Elijah You can go and read this in the first book of Kings, but after Elijah has that titanic confrontation on the mountaintop with the prophets of Baal, remember that that great story where he challenges them to a contest? You call on your gods to light this altar, and I will call on my God to light my altar. And the prophets of Baal wail and they moan and they pray and they chant and they cut themselves, but nothing happens. Nothing happens to that altar. And so when they're, and and Elijah taunts them, pray louder. They must not hear you. They must be busy. And when they finally give up, Elijah has all the water, remember, poured on the altar and, and he prays that Oh, Jehovah God will prove that there is a God in Israel and the the lightning comes down and it consumes the altar. And then they massacre. The Old Testament doesn't hold back. They massacre all the prophets of Baal. Not one of them is allowed to escape. 
they chop them into little pieces. You would think that that is the moment of the greatest triumph for Elijah, and yet King Ahab comes after Elijah, and shortly after that great triumph, he's out in the wilderness, and he is bewailing to God his situation. And God says, don't worry, I've saved to myself 7,000. 7,000 of the faithful remnant. And of course, seven, we, we know that whenever seven pops up in Hebrew scriptures, it has some special meaning that it, it, it refers to this kind of completed work that is the work of God. So when he says, I have 7,000, we are reminded that this is part of the plan of God. Even in the worst moments when the people of Israel have, have demolished all of the altars to God and have, have worshipped the Baals, God still has a plan and it still involves the nation of Israel. Now, Stott makes a very important point that, that Paul here is now ungeneralizing about the nation of Israel. When he says that there is, yes, even in the Old Testament scriptures, there were the, the impious among Israel who had turned from God, there were still the faithful remnant. He's making the ungeneralization about Israel that is the same as the ungeneralization about the rest of humanity. That is, not all of Israel rejected God, just like not all of the Gentile nations accepted God. And we know that in our own world, that we live in a what some people would call a post-Christian world, that much of the world has turned back away from God. Much of it has turned back away from his revealed truth through Christ. And yet, the faithful remnant are still the faithful remnant. We know how this story ends. We know how the, at, at, the, at the end of the book, when it comes to the end, we know what will be the situation, and so we, the faithful remnant, have 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 clung to our faith, just as the faithful remnant of Israel clung to their faith in the Old Testament scriptures. This bears repeating. I think whenever we hear in the in our modern secular world that it's somehow central to Christianity to posit that Israel rejected Christ, killed Christ forfeited its special place with God. That is not Christian theology. That is a total misunderstanding and a misapplication of Christian theology. If somebody would like to read the next section, this is where I take the title of, um, of today's session. We have verses 11 through 24, again in chapter um, chapter 11. 11, 11 through 11, 24. Do I have a volunteer? Alan, you want to do it? Go ahead. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as fistfuls is holy, fist fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Well read. Thank you. Um, Christ often in his ministry use this tree analogy, this root and branch analogy. Remember, often he uh, offered threats, if you will, to the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, that, um, that only one more season before these trees that no longer bear fruit will be tolerated by the owner. And then if they do not bear fruit, they will be cut down and burned in the fire. We have the, the, um, uh, uh, the metaphor of the, of the root in the branch. That is that God is the root and we are but the branches. It's a prayer. We I used to hear Frank Limehouse use that in his in his prayers all the time. Remem let us remember that we are only the branches and without the, the root that is you, we can do nothing. You are the vine. We are only the branches off of the vine. I'll get back to that in a moment. I just wanted to remind everybody that Paul is using a metaphor, an allegory, if you will. Really, it's well enough developed and we're going to talk about it as an allegory not just uh, as the metaphor, but this is a recurring metaphor in Holy Scripture, um, the, the tree and the root and the branches. Um, get back to the first of what Alan read about making Israel jealous. There was a movie made in the late 1980s, and some of you may remember it. It, it didn't make much of a splash because it was a kind of a it was kind of a popular movie, but it wasn't a deep movie. It was called Major League, and uh, it was it, it was set on a sort of a sad sack Major League Baseball team that happened to be the Cleveland Indians before the Cleveland Indians got relevant again, and um, it was um, 
the story was that uh, the Indians had a new owner who had this plot to move the team down from hard luck, gritty Cleveland to this magnificent new facility in Miami that had been built. And the only way to do that was to break the lease in Cleveland. And so the way that the lease could be broken, her plot, is to make the team so bad that nobody would come to the ball games and then it would dip below the attendance level that was necessary for the for the lease to be um, to be enforced and so she could jump the lease. And so the, the plot was to hire the, the worst ball players, the most washed up ball players, <clears throat> and to sign them and to make the team really, really bad. Well, you can imagine without even, it wasn't a very imaginative movie, so you can figure out the plot right away. The, um, the uh, existing ball players who were mostly overpaid, underperforming stars um, see these new, vigorous, very enthusiastic guys, sad sacks who were given their their shot at the big at the big leagues, who were performing in a way that's completely above their abilities. And of course, the um, the old established stars get jealous, and they start to perform, and the team gels, and they win the pennant, and the and the machinations of the new owner are frustrated, and the and the club stays in Cleveland. Um, what's most notable about that movie as a cultural phenomenon is that the actors who were well known who were in the movie were mostly sort of B movie sort of actors like Tom Berenger was this washed up old catcher with bad knees who's one of the new players who signed. Um, Corbin Bernson who was best known for the TV series LA Law was one of the superstars. but. A couple of the other people who played in the movie who were not very well known later became much more famous. Wesley Snipes was this was this really speedy ball player who nevertheless could only hit pop flies, so they had to figure out how to get him to, to, to draw a walk so he could get on base, because otherwise he would never get on base. And Charlie Sheen played this um, played this relief pitcher right out of reform school who uh, if if the Old Testament prophets were scripting that movie, they could not have been more prophetic than the way Charlie Sheen later turned out in his life and his career. I offer that only because um, as I was reading what Paul wrote about making Israel jealous, I couldn't help but think about that movie. Now, the motive of God and the motive of the new owner of the Cleveland Indians in that movie were in no way comparable. But the effect was the same. That is, making Israel jealous by reaching out to the Gentiles. Israel had this covenant relationship with God that was 3,000 years old. And I, to get 3,000, I go all the way back to Abraham, not just to the Ten Commandments in the Exodus. A 3,000-year covenant relationship with God was Israel's covenant birthright. And yet, God went to the Gentiles when Israel rejected the Messiah. In a way, it had what, what Stott refers to as kind of a, of a ricochet effect. That is that in rejecting the Messiah and ricocheting Christ to the Gentiles, 
Then the Gentiles accepted Christ, which will have the ricochet effect of making Israel jealous and bringing Israel to God through Christ, which will then have the ricochet effect of conforming the whole creation to Christ, uh, to God through Christ. And that's made pretty explicit here. Um, in verse 11, or rather in verse 12, now if they're stumbling, they're meaning Israel, their stumbling means riches for the world, and if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Down into the second half of verse 14 or rather in 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? There is a, a, a glimpse of apocalyptic thought here that in the, in the Israelite Jewish apocalyptic worldview, the moment that all of the <coughs> world comes to Yahweh is the moment that all of the dead will be raised. Now some, according to Stott, not all commentators accept that Paul was writing apocalyptically in the Jewish sense because after all he was addressing himself to a, a, a church that was both Gentile and Jew. But he was, there, there is a sense here that what he is saying is that God's plan is to, is to come to creation through Israel and then to be offered to the rest of the world and then eventually Israel will be redeemed to God through Christ in, in the fulfillment of God's plan. Recall that during Paul's missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts, what was the first thing that he always did? He would come to a new city and he would immediately go to the local synagogue. He would preach first in the synagogue. Some would hear and believe. Some would scoff. Some would revile him and seek to kill him. Only after that would he set up a ministry there in the city for the Gentiles. And in a way, I suppose, that what Paul was writing is he was making his people jealous. And he, he actually refers to that here in verse 14. In, in order to make my own people jealous and thus to save some of them. That's exactly what we read in the, in the book of Acts. That, that Paul was doing. He was provoking Israel to jealousy because this covenant relationship that they had enjoyed with God was now open to all of the world. So I'd like to offer a counterfactual, but before I do that, does anybody have any comments or thoughts or questions about this as part of God's plan? Brian, your your hand went up for just a second. Well, I, 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 it just occurs to me, or, or it seems 
use that seems to me like it would have been much easier to uh, to kind of sell the gospel uh, to the Gentiles uh, than it would be to the Jews. That's an extremely interesting thought that Brian has offered because the intuitive response would be to assume that because of 3,000 years of exposure to God and having the gift of the law and the interpretation of the prophets, and this long relationship, the assumption would be that the first nation to recognize the Messiah would be the Jews. That this, this man walks into them from their own, from within Judaism, and says, I am the Messiah, I am the one foretold in the law and the prophets, I am the, I am the fulfillment of the law. You would think think, the human part of us would think that the Jews would recognize him first because after all, the Jews would have the frame of reference to understand who this Christ was. But Brian makes a very important point, I think, that it was so counterintuitive to the human understanding of what this Messiah would be that perhaps it took ignorant, ignorant in the sense of not experienced and not learned in the law and the prophets, ignorant Gentiles to recognize him first. Yes, ma'am. I think because the Jews were so bound with the law, and that's what they saw, and what Christ brought forth was love, and it was so counterpoint to what the Jews were about. You know, they depended on the law that had been handed down from Abraham and Elijah that to see somebody who came and loved and accepted all these people who were unclean was, to them, they couldn't get over that. And they expected somebody to come in, and I think their thought was he'd come riding on a big white horse and that a, mindset. A conquering Messiah rather than a right. humble Messiah. Right. A Messiah on a horse rather than a Messiah on a donkey. Yeah, and sometimes I think even today as Christians, we look for that white horse. Do we ever? You know, and that when Christ comes, he comes to us in this humble state. Mm -hmm. And I think to hear him, we want to be humble also. Copy? Heidi made an interesting point that sort of reflects on this. We've heard the Jewish people referred to as a stiff-necked people. Yes. Mm -hmm. Heidi says, if you keep looking back, your neck will be stiff. And you keep looking over your shoulder, and perhaps the Jews looked over their shoulder at what had been and not what was to be, mm -hmm. and thereby became that stiff-necked people. Accept him, and of course, the 
Paul had written in chapter 9 that the Gentiles who were not righteous had attained righteousness through grace. The Jews who were righteous or who sought righteousness had missed righteousness because they were looking for it in the law. And here in a passage that Alan read... Paul writes in chapter 11 about God giving them what I, um, I translated. Actually, Coffee read that. I'm sorry. Uh, my translation reads, God gave them a sluggish spirit. I'm not remembering what Coffee read. It was a little different. But um, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. A spirit of stupor. A spirit of stupor. Um that's not to say that God caused them to be like that. It is more to say that God gave them over to their natural state. It is God stepped back and said, all right, if you insist, that's the sense in which God gave them a stupor and eyes that would not see. But here's my counterfactual, and it sort of flows from many of the comments around the table. Suppose that Israel had accepted Christ as the Messiah there in the first century during the three years of Christ's ministry. Suppose that en masse, the Israelite nation had been, had, had welcomed Christ as the Messiah and that the fulfillment of the law and the prophets would have been recognized for what it was and Israel had been converted what then of the next 2,000 years of history as God attempts to reconcile the Gentiles to him how would that have worked what would that have looked like now what I'm going to suggest is not doctrine I didn't find it anywhere in any of the commentators and if some brilliant theologian is ever come up with it, then it's only by chance that I stumbled into this line of thinking, and it could be dead wrong, but I go back to saying it's not doctrine. This is only a counterfactual, a sort of a what if. And the what if is, I suppose that a clue to what the next 2,000 years would have looked like, we find in the Old Testament scriptures where, like the story of Rahab, and the story of Ruth, and the story of Naaman, these occasional Gentiles who see and recognize in 
God's relationship to Israel something special. And even though they are Gentiles, they are outside God's covenant, they are brought into the covenant as Gentiles who are not Israelites. We see it, glimpses of it in the New Testament. These, um, uh, these righteous Gentiles like Cornelius the centurion in Acts and like the occasional government official in the Gospels who is seen as a semi-believer in this God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they are outside the covenant relationship and recognize that this is Israel's God. I suppose that if Israel had accepted the Messiah in the first century when he came, then the next 2,000 years we would have seen more Rahabs and more Corneliuses who recognized this special relationship between Israel and its God, but would have continued to see this God as something that belonged to Israel and did not belong to the nations of the Gentiles. And in a very real way, it's quite possible that God's plan could only, and this is where I'm getting away from doctrine. I'm walking way out into the weeds here, and don't don't say that I'm I'm interpreting Paul to mean that it was God's plan that Israel would reject Christ, so that so that that the the Gentiles would accept Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the way it is is that is that. The Gentiles came to God through Christ, and as Paul writes, this makes Israel jealous because this was supposed to be Israel's relationship. If it had continued to be Israel's exclusive relationship, perhaps the Gentile nations would never have seen that Christ was not just the Messiah for Israel, but was the universal Savior. That's, that's everywhere in the gospel. And so perhaps in a real sense, it was part of the plan of God. We know, let me back up, we know that it was the plan of God that Israel, that, that Christ had to be rejected because we know that it was the plan of God for, Israel, for Christ to come to die. The plan, the redemption could not have happened without Christ's sacrificial death. So in some sense, Christ had to be rejected. So it's not a million miles from the truth that Israel's en masse rejection of Christ, but except for the faithful remnant, is part of God's plan to redeem all of the world because then Christ is relevant to all of the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't see Christ as simply the God of Israel. And this is where I think it gets back to the faithful remnant in the 7,000. There have always been those who rejected God in the Old Testament and the New. There continue to be those who rejected God in the Old Testament and since the New. There were always a faithful remnant. There were always some who, 7,000, because of God's plan, we're always going to be through grace, through election, through being called and reconciled, conformed to him because he foreknew them and he predestined them. 
there were always those who were going to be God's people even when the rest of the world rejected God. And that is as true in the New Testament world as it is in the Old Testament world. So Paul, I think, is making an argument for all of the nations being required to, and we get back to that duality of, of it being completely grace and it being completely free will, and the two stand side by side, and even though they seem to be irreconcilably in conflict, nevertheless, there they are. And so there need, for, for, for us to be among the 7,000 of the faithful remnant, we have to exercise our free will to accept what was done for us without our works at all. And this is where, to get back to this image of the olive tree, and I'm sorry that Brian had to leave. He obviously had to go invest because he said something that I, I wrote down. He said it's 180 degrees from what we would have understood. And in fact, a lot of commentaries have actually, actually mocked Paul for this analogy of the olive tree because in fact, doesn't Paul know, he's a city boy, I guess he doesn't know, that horticulturally speaking, you can't graft wild olive branches onto a cultivated olive tree and have it work. It doesn't work. It, 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 it ruins the fruit of the cultivated tree. The only way it works is to graft cultivated branches onto an uncultivated wild olive tree. Only then can you make good fruit where there was not good fruit before. Yet Paul's metaphor, his, um, his allegory here, is the opposite way. Well, yeah, it's the opposite way. It may be that Paul didn't understand horticulture, but he understood theology. And he was making a very important point that counterintuitively, by grafting, by, by cutting off the branches that did not produce, and by grafting these wild branches onto the cultivated tree, he is making cultivated branches out of what was once wild. But, lest you Gentiles get a big head about this. Don't let it go to your head, you Gentiles, because God having cut off the cultivated branches, he can always graft them back on, and he can always cut off the wild branches that he has grafted on. So it's a warning to all believers, and it's the same warning that he wrote to the believers in the church in Ephesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To put it in the more modern language, not King James. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of any works, so that no one may boast. Not Gentile, not Jew, not Greek, not anybody who is of the faithful remnant because we are faithful remnant only because we are of the elect. We are conformed to him because he foreknew us and he predestined us to be conformed to him. We exercise our free will to accept that conformity and we are justified.
Thanks be to God. Copy. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree engrafted contrary to nature. There you go. Thank you. Cultivated olive contrary to nature. So we want such a dumb country. I don't. It's in verse 24. Middle of verse 24. Contrary to nature. I think it is. Coffee read it. Verse 24. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul may not have been a horticulturalist, but he understood theologically what is contrary to nature, what is contrary to our understanding of the way things work is in fact the way God makes them work. 